Welcome to the BioCurious Podcast, a place for you to be curious about your biology and discover new ways to upgrade and optimize your mind, body, and human performance. The guests on this podcast are trained experts in the fields of functional health, holistic wellness, and biohacking who share my passion to provide useful and actionable information with all of you that I hope will help you to live your best life. I'm so happy that you're here, and I'm excited to get curious together. So before we dive into today's episode, I wanted to share a couple of really cool projects that I'm a part of that I'm really excited about, and I think all of you would also be excited to hear about. The first is the Women's Biohacking Collective, which is my personal passion project and is the first exclusive holistic and evidence-based women's biohacking community founded by four women in STEM and is the only magazine-style co-op and community for women-centered holistic biohacking content. So I hope all of my awesome biohacking lady friends check it out and join us there. The Instagram page is WB underscore collective and on the web it's thewbcollective.com. The other one is actually an opportunity to hang out with me in Iceland for a fully immersive biohacking experience with Live Beyond Global, which is actually directly following the Health Optimization Summit in London in September. I'll be there alongside other biohacking experts and a select group of super high performance humans to recharge, do deep work, experience the healing power of nature, and apply targeted biohacks with the best of the best. And it would be super cool if you joined us too, but there's only a few slots left for this trip, so you'll need to hop on that ASAP. You can go to livebeyond.global to apply. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Jay Wiles, who is a clinical health psychologist with specialized training in nutritional psychology, biofeedback, health behavior coaching, health assessment, and complementary and integrative health. He also works as a health consultant for individuals and companies in teaching skills for optimizing mental health and cognitive well-being. Dr. Wiles is also the co-host of the Ben Greenfield Fitness Podcast and has a strong interest in the interconnection between ancestral approaches to health and better living through science. On this episode, we discuss innovations in applied psychophysiology, the link between food and psychological well-being, the epigenetic side of nutrition, how to use food as medicine, why diets don't work, the importance of mind flexibility, natural pain relief methods, exciting new integrative health modalities, how to use biofeedback to optimize your health, how to put your health data into action, DIY biofeedback methods, the best wearables for self-experimentation, the benefits of heart rate variability training, how to improve your heart rate variability, and the most important aspect of health that you should work on first. Jay, thank you so much for coming on the BioCurious podcast. I'm super excited to talk to you today. Um, But before we get 
into it. Could you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into psychology? Yeah, well, thanks again for having me on, Kayla. It is an honor, and I know we were chatting a little bit before this, um, and I just wanted to let you know that you've been doing an awesome job on this podcast, so thanks for all the great content that you're providing to all of your listeners and to myself as well. Um, so thanks again. And to answer your question, um, you know, my my story is one that is kind of conventional and unconventional, if you will. So the field of psychology, the reason I got into the field of psychology is kind of more straightforward. And then the reason I got into nutritional psychology and health psychology is maybe a little not so straightforward. So let me just start with the straightforward aspect of psychology. So all growing up, I was just very interested in human behavior and kind of neurology and the way the brain works and kind of why do people do what they do? Why do people say what they say? Uh, kind of how do we get um, into you know, so much crap that we end up getting into um, due to our behavior? And so uh, it was kind of like at an early age, I would say maybe even early high school when I became interested in psychology, I took a class. It was just like, a, I don't even remember, I mean, probably a basic level, you know, high school class in psychology. And we started talking about brain neuroanatomy and we started talking about behavioral kind of implications or the bio biological basis of behavior. And so I just became really interested in that concept, wanted to learn more about how I could help people from that framework um, because I saw a lot of devastation when it came to relationships, uh, when it came to the toxicity of, of people's behaviors, getting them into just a lot of um, unfortunate relationships. And so um, I, I went on that route and, you know, initially I thought I was going to be a, a therapist, a counselor. That's kind of where my, where my kind of dream goal was. And so, uh, you know, I went off to college and enjoyed my time in college and learning about psychology, thought that yes, still counseling was the way I wanted to go. And so actually, when I graduated from my bachelor's um, university, I ended up going and getting a master's in counseling and it was like my first class or so I was there and I just was, uh, was not super excited about this idea of kind of sitting with people's pain, if you will. I know this doesn't sound like a psychologist answer, but this is kind of more the unconventional side. Um, I, I just didn't like the idea of just sitting with people's pain, if you will, for, for 40 hours a week, just doing psychotherapy. And so I got a, really interested in this idea of testing and assessment um, and kind of, you know, diagnosis and kind of more conventional psychology or clinical psychologist work as opposed to therapist work. And uh, so I decided, you know what, if I'm going to do that, I need to pursue my doctoral degree. So then I went and got my doctoral degree. And it wasn't until I started my doctoral degree that I started having some uh, I guess, weird, unexplained health-related concerns. Uh, and, and I can get into that if you'd like. Um, but basically, it was from those experiences that I got more interested in working in health psychology, which is what I do now. So as opposed to a clinical psychologist that would see people for clinical disorders like depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder, you know, schizophrenia, or psychosis, I generally see the medical population and the medical side and work more on like health behavior change aspects integrative health and integrative medicine. Um, I take much more of a holistic approach. And so uh, that's kind of a long-winded answer to say, like, I got into this to help people, like any other psychologist would say, but then kind of uh, due to some other bumps in the road for me, uh, it led me down the path that I'm currently on, which is much more in the field of, of health psychology. Yeah, that's super interesting. You know, 
I'm curious what your uh, doctoral degree was in or what your focus was, because I'm in a doctoral degree currently in complementary and integrative medicine. Most, I would say 95% of my colleagues who are in that program are also psychologists. I'm the only one coming from a public health background. So oh, cool. Always interesting uh, conversations, but I'm learning so much on the psychology side, just because they really kind of tailor the program towards psychology. So yeah. uh, what was, what was your doctoral degree in? So I, I, my doctoral degree was in clinical psychology. So I am a clinical psychologist by training, but then I specialized in health psychology, which was what I was, which what I was kind of getting to just a little bit ago, uh, okay. which is more of a focus on, on kind of more physical health and then also the comorbidity of physical ailment and mental health health related concerns. So we know that the you know, general population of individuals who have physical ailment are much more likely to have psychological ailment um, that is comorbid. So I, I am trained as a clinical psychologist, but with a more of a specialization and background training in, in health and nutritional psychology, if that, if that clears it up. Okay. Yeah. That's super cool. I, I love when, um, when there's like a cross section of these major areas of health, especially when you get into like lifestyle medicine practices and combine that with traditional psychology or even traditional medicine. Um, it's really powerful. So, right. No, um, absolutely. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit more? Um, like what is nutritional psychology? Yeah, so nutritional psychology is not, well, I'll say more or less nowadays, it's kind of well known. It used to not be very well known, um, but it's it's kind of gaining ground now because of the uh, expansion of integrative health and complementary health. And so nutritional psychology is the study of the bi-directional relationship between nutrients or food, what we're putting in our body, and then our emotional and psychological well-being. And so I stress that bi-directional word uh, because it's not just the ways in which food can inherently change our biology and our neurology, but also the ways that our current psychological, cognitive, and emotional states or functioning can affect our food choices. So the two are, are, are very interconnected um, with one another, kind of food decision-making and then emotional well-being, but also too, kind of there, there's, there's that bi-directional or, or um, kind of opposite direction that also leads one to, to make different choices depending on the psychological state they're in. So yeah, that's uh, that's it in a nutshell. Okay, so like the term emotional eating kind of comes from that. Yeah, yeah, I would say that emotional eating can come from that. Absolutely. So there's a lot of inherently biological mechanisms that are occurring, a lot of mechanisms of action that are occurring uh, when we're in an emotional state to kind of then determine where we go um, when it comes to what we're putting in our body, our nutrient content. Mm, yeah. And you mentioned that bi-directional aspect. And so to me, that it, that's basically epigenetics. And so, you know, the field of epigenetics is huge right now. And it's basically that our environment changes our biology and our neurology and even down to the cellular and DNA level, our environment determines these things, which is super cool and exciting because then that means that we have actually have some control over these things and it's not just nature and it's not just nurture. It's like a combination of the two. Um, yeah. So, so yeah. Can you explain like, what are some examples of 
of things that you've seen where nutrition has really changed somebody's um, biology or neurology in a really profound way? Yeah. So I would say that, you know, for me as a health psychologist and, and kind of having this background in the subfield of health psychology that is nutritional psychology, um, this is still not something that um, I received formal training in, um, in my schooling. I received formal training in it kind of on my own accord, but it's not something that's taught. And so it's really interesting to me that within all of my doctoral work and all my graduate level work, there was never discussion about the inherent effects that nutrition can have on our emotional psychological well-being and then there was never any talk really more though i would say there was more talk about how kind of our emotional state can then um dysregulate kind of our eating habits but not the not the vice versa aspect so to answer your question like for me i had to get more of a formal background and training in it because i I had no training in nutrition but because of kind of my own um, health concerns that i was having um, when i was in when i was in college a lot of brain fog a lot of things just kind of going wrong i ended up doing a lot more self-exploration a lot more studying which led me to kind of my interest in nutritional psychology and so for me, uh, when I see this kind of on a clinical standpoint, you know, I truly see from a clinical standpoint, I truly see anything and everything um, because of the pop- population I work with. So I work with veterans who come in with an array of health conditions, both psychological and or mental and then physical. And so I'm doing a lot of my focus on, on kind of health behavior coaching for individuals with diabetes, cardiovascular disease, COPD, uh, a huge one in the veteran population is insomnia and chronic pain, um, PTSD, anxiety, depression, kind of you name it. And so one of the things that is typically not a discussion from a psychologist standpoint is what is it that you're putting into your body? What are the, what is the nutritional content of what you're putting into your body? And I will stress to you that this is definitely not solely my focus. I think that I went through a time period like many people do who are into biohacking are into, you know, the nutritional world or the world that you and I are in Kayla is that we can tend to become either fixated on the idea of one thing making a kind of a change all approach almost like a panacea and so for me i kind of went through this time period where i saw oh it's nutrition nutrition is kind of the primary thing that causes depression causes anxiety causes x y and z and i've since kind of changed my viewpoint do i think that nutrition plays a a a major role absolutely but do other things like light uh, like water like environmental toxins also play a role you better believe it. Um, but let me just kind of give you an example because I know that you you asked about that. But I've had plenty of individuals who come in um, who are very overweight, uh, maybe have diabetes or uh, hypertension or cardiovascular disease, and uh, and they also have like comorbid depression. And one of the things that kind of is continually taught to them by many nutritionists, which is you know kind of a downfall still in that field, is kind of this idea of a you know a low fat, low calorie, increased carbohydrate type diet. And most of these individuals have trouble continuing to lose weight or they just still feel depressed or feel more depressed. And so for a lot of them, I'll, I'll kind of um, discuss because I am not a, I'm not a dietitian or a nutritionist, so I never prescribe diets, but I'm always allowed to provide education. So that's kind of like my runaround as a psychologist is that I'll provide them education 
on simple things like neurotransmitter synthesis. Uh, so something like, let's say, serotonin, for instance, which is synthesized from the protein, the essential amino acid, L-tryptophan. And so L-tryptophan, through a process of uh, synthesis, utilizing minerals and utilizing vitamins, is synthesized into uh, serotonin um, and, and also melatonin. So I might even educate um, kind of uh, the individual on foods high in tryptophan, like eggs, um, dark meat, turkey, nuts and seeds, like pumpkin seeds especially, uh, cheese, lamb, beef, pork, salmon, um, all of them which are typically uh, not included in a nutritionist or a dietitian's <laughs> dietary protocol. So it comes as quite a, uh, I guess, a shock to most individuals because they weren't expecting necessarily for me to tar start telling them, hey, you should up your egg intake or you should up your, you know, cheese or lamb or beef mm -hmm. intake. <laughs> so it's always a fun conversation to have and in an effort to not get too long in the tooth, like my counterpart, Ben uh, Greenfield says, uh, I'll, 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 I'll calm down a little bit, but that's kind of an example of something that I might provide as a nutritional psychologist is that piece of education on the effects that nutrition can have on our mental well-being and neurotransmitter synthesis. It's really interesting how what we eat really does have specific effects on our behaviors, on our mindset, on all kinds of uh, cascades of hormones and different systems in the in our biology um, and this is something that I'm actually studying I'm getting a, a specialization in my doctoral program in um, functional nutrition and so functional nutrition at its core is basically eating for purpose so instead of eating just to meet your uh, your your macros and micros and and just to you know get certain nutrients and um, eat a certain number of calories or eat a certain number of fats versus carbs versus proteins whatever um, you're actually eating foods that are working towards the goals that you have for yourself like right. big goals life goals so if like a goal for yourself is to um, be more efficient at work and like have a positive mood. There are certain foods that you would want to incorporate or eliminate um, from your diet for that purpose. And so I love that you're incorporating this also in your, in your psychology practice. I think that, you know, the more we can get uh, clinicians to be cross-cutting and include all of these areas of, of really, I guess, lifestyle medicine is the best term for it. It can be really powerful. Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. And I really like that you point out this whole concept of eating with a purpose, uh, because I think that is what most people, uh, they, they don't live by that concept. They really live by the concept that food is a pleasure thing, which it is like, let's not deny it. Like food is a pleasure thing, but also too, we eat with a purpose because food can truly be reparative and truly can be a primary form of medicine for us. And that concept um, for us kind of in this field who live and breathe in this field is like a no-brainer. But if I talk to my typical veteran and I make a comment like that, they're going to look at me like I'm a complete moron. And they're going to say, you have a doctoral degree from where? And, uh, and so that challenge is difficult. So I have to really make sure that I break this down on the most simplistic levels possible. And, you know, it, I think that our day and age, a lot more individuals are open to this idea that we should be eating with a purpose. And, you know, I even teach techniques like mindfulness eating or mindful eating, which is 
is really yeah. important. And, uh, and, and they're becoming more open to it, but there's always like that slight hesitation when you tell them about these things, you provide that education. So I always have to kind of be wearisome of it. I won't say wearisome of it. I just have to take small steps and make sure that I'm not just kind of overloading them with information because the way my brain works, um, I just want to kind of blurt out everything I know and be like, listen, you've got to buy into this, right? I mean, this is some really good stuff. You can make some inherent biological changes just by switching up some things in your diet. Um, and, uh, but I have to, you know, take a step back, pump the brakes a little bit and, um, you know, calm down my, my cortisol <laughs> release. So that's uh, but that's a typical day for me. <laughs> yeah. I also share your enthusiasm and I get really excited and I am known to kind of overwhelm people because I'm like, oh my gosh, like I clearly see like 20 things that you could do like so easily that are going to help you so much. And, and, uh, and then they're like, whoa, whoa, this is too much, you know? <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. You know, well, the thing is, is I don't want to turn in or turn the encounter with this individual into an encounter like they would have with like, maybe let's say a conventional primary care physician, which okay. is very, you know, directive. Um, it is like, it's kind of like, you know, the hierarchical approach, you must do this. Whereas my approach, you know, typically is very collaborative. Um, it is something that I'm like, hey, I want to have a discussion with you. Like, you're the expert of you when it comes down to it. You're the one who's in control. So I'll let you kind of make an informed decision. Um, and, and again, I don't like this whole idea of a one size fits all when it comes to nutrition, when it comes to biohacking, when it comes to whatever it is, when it comes to anything, it, it, it all boils down to kind of what works for that individual. And if mm. a ketogenic diet works for that individual, that is amazing. If maybe a higher carbohydrate diet works for that individual, I'm going to just as much support what works for that individual than I am kind of, uh, you know, throwing out my own ideas and my potential dogmas because I have to be I have to be honest with myself. I fall into certain camps and, you know, when I'm doing, you know, podcasts with, with Ben, um, uh, I, I have to, I have to pull back a little bit because I'm like, you know, I want to just share kind of all of what I think is right. But I'm, I might find out here in, you know, a few months, few years, few decades that I'm like completely wrong. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, you, if you listen back to a lot of my podcast episodes or what I talk about, um, you know, in social media and, and whatnot, you'll see like the thing that I, always say is like here I'm sharing with you what works for me but please do not take my word for it or anyone else's please do your own self-experimentation which is why biohacking is so cool because yes. it is teaching people how to take control and ownership of their own health rather than just listening to their doctor blindly or an influencer blindly or their mom or whatever just um, you know take everything with a grain of salt try it out, apply it. And then if it doesn't work for you, then toss it out and go on to the next thing or just keep the parts that do work. Um, for instance, right. my, uh, food lifestyle, I hate to use the word diet, um, is, is largely a combo of all kinds of different diets that are out there. It's definitely not one or the other. Yeah. And you know, that's not allowed, Kayla. Come on. That's not allowed. <laughs> I know it's very, very naughty of me, but <laughs> right. I'm going to throw, I'm going to throw you in nutrition jail. Yes, I know. I, I get some flack, you know, when I'll, when I'll um, admit to some, some nutritional things that I do. And also, yeah. you know, probably, you know, sometimes 5%, sometimes 20%. I just eat whatever the heck I want, including yeah. like beer, pizza, whatever. Oh yeah. And, 
you know, you got to live. So I, I totally agree with you. One size fits all does not work. But also, um, it's funny, I was having a conversation on, an, on another podcast I was on earlier this week. And, um, and the host asked me about, uh, about the vegan diet, because he's been following the vegan diet, but he's been mm -hmm. noticing like some uh, issues with it and that it's a lot of processed food and stuff. Yeah. And then he was at odds because he also ethically doesn't agree with eating meat. Sure. And so what I said, and I hope this, um, you know, gave him permission to do what feels right for him is I said, you know, uh, um, I don't follow the vegan diet. And, um, just because, for me, I, my biology works better by having some meat or animal products. Um, and I said, but, you know, if I felt strongly, if I felt better, like um, on a moral standpoint to just eat vegetables, then that would be more important than the nutritional value of the food because that's affecting your mind. And your mindset is... I would argue much more important than even anything like physical in your environment, whether it be exercise, nutrition, whatever, all these oh, things yeah. are really important, of course, and part of the pie, but the bigger part of the pie is your mindset. And if you're able to keep like a positive and powerful mindset, then that's going to be a lot more important than, you know, maybe not eating um, certain foods that contain certain uh, nutritional value that you might need. Um, so right. I was like, you know, it's a balance, but you have to do number one, what makes you feel good um, mentally, not only physically, but you have to do what makes you feel good mentally. So if right. eating a vegan diet is important to your mental health, then I say definitely do it. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. I think that you hit on a really nice point when you talk about the power and importance of mindset and how it can really set us up for uh, success, but it, it can also set us up for massive failure. And it is kind of my belief that it is when we set up in kind of this mindset of rigidity and this mindset of dogma that that leads, that is, I would argue, is the single cause or the single greatest cause of dietary failure. We get so locked up in this is what we must do. This is the amount of calories we must eat. This is the amount of fat we must eat or must not eat, depending on what camp you're in. And, and then we do not give ourselves um, and others, too, any leniency in it. And so that ends up resulting in us. I'm just saying, you know, one day it just ends up being like, screw it. And like, I can't, I can't fit to this model, so I might as well just go back to the, you know, the old way of eating. And then we start feeling bad again. So the rigidity aspect, the mental um, kind of frame work that we approach things uh, from from a dietary standpoint is extremely crucial it's extremely important and like you said too like if you're feeling better doing what you're doing then maybe not don't stop what you're doing because we really just want to feel better from a mind body spirit perspective and I, I and I and I think that if we get so caught up in the rigidity of things from a mindset standpoint yeah we may be shoveling some really good stuff into our body but we may not be getting nearly the amount of effect because we're so stuck kind of in our ways. And I think, again, it just makes all the world of a difference. Oh, yeah. So that's really it, isn't it? It's kind of having a flexibility in not only your mindset, which is super important, but also like your lifestyle and accepting 
that if you're not perfect or if you don't stick exactly to the plan, you shouldn't let that like throw you off course and make you feel bad about yourself because that's going to have a lot more uh, negative effects on your physiology, just feeling bad about yourself or guilty. Um, Like allow yourself to have some space to be human. (laughs) Yes. No, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. Um, so I also know that you do, you practice some other complementary and integrative uh, mechanisms and modalities in your practice. Can you speak to um, some of the other really impactful practices? Yeah, most definitely. So kind of like I was saying earlier, I, I don't fall into this, to this camp of I, I see things through like a lens of nutritional psychology and, and that's kind of it. All I talk about and do is nutritional psychology. There was a point in time where I did that. So for instance, when I was doing my residency, I, I did my residency at uh, the VA hospital in Richmond, Virginia, and I worked at an integrative pain center. And the integrative pain center was amazing. I mean, it was kind of state of the art, one of a kind. Uh, we did a lot of things like biofeedback, um, mindfulness meditation, Tai Chi, Qigong, um, acupuncture, and, and nutritional psychology. And when I was working there, I established a nutritional psychology clinic where I saw individuals with a, uh, a medical physician where we would tailor um, diets depending on their chronic pain experience and level and also kind of on um, other mental health factors and physical health factors. And I got so drawn into this kind of field of nutritional psychology that I did, I kind of missed every everything else that we were doing and always attributed um, like a young idiot uh, who had a lot of fallacy. I attributed uh, kind of all the change that people were experiencing to, oh, it must have been Dr. Wiles who was giving them all these great nutritional approaches and was, in, and was going kind of that route. But what I found out, um, especially later on, once I got to learn more about complementary and integrative health, is that no, it was really the combination of things. It was it, that word integrative. It was integrating kind of all these different modes modalities. So I started exploring things like yoga, things like mindfulness meditation, things like biofeedback, Tai Chi and Qigong, and actually ended up getting certifications in like almost all of those things because I was so interested in kind of their effects. So for instance, I do a lot of biofeedback now, especially with my veterans who have chronic pain. So in the biohacking world, in the kind of um, alternative or complementary and integrative health world, um, biofeedback has become a popularized modality of change. And a lot of people may not know it as biofeedback. They may have heard of it as HRV training or heart rate variability training, or they may have heard of it as um, EEG training, which is neurofeedback. Um, I don't do a lot of neurofeedback. I do some, but I predominantly stick to like applied psychophysiology, which is mostly biofeedback or body biofeedback. And so I do a lot of training with veterans with chronic pain who um, are, are have like dysregulated muscle contraction and muscle control. So we do a lot of EMG work, which looks at um, electrical impulses, which is within the muscle um, action potentials. And then we also uh, do a lot of heart rate variability training. So if people don't know what heart rate variability training is. This is actually looking at uh, the interval between each adjacent heartbeat, and that's in in time, in milliseconds. And what we know is that people who have more autonomic dysregulation, which is dysregulation of the autonomic nervous system, or our fight-flight response, and then also our relaxation response, which which is called the parasympathetic response, we can actually um, help them to increase this interval of time, because low intervals of time or kind of continuous intervals of time is kind of a bad thing. The heart is 
not a metronome. It's not something that regulates itself on time. It actually responds to threats accordingly uh, when we are in kind of a healthy state. So you kind of see somewhat of an erratic heart. And most people would think, oh, erratic time be between heartbeats, that doesn't sound good. And it doesn't, um, but it actually is very good. And so biofeedback kind of has like a twofold purpose. The first thing is to promote more self-awareness and more self-monitoring so people can see, oh, this is what it's like. Uh, this is kind of what my breathing pattern looks like. This is what my heart rate looks like or my heart rate pattern. This is how much muscle contraction I'm holding. This is what it feels like to hold this amount of muscle contraction. And then I teach different techniques like self-regulation techniques, things like progressive muscle relaxation, mindfulness meditation, um, appropriate diaphragmatic breathing, you know, which is breathing from the belly instead of breathing thoracically or clavically from the you know, chest and shoulders. Uh, and kind of making these kind of small tweaks um, can increase our heart rate variability. It can decrease muscular tension. Um, it can decrease our overall stress response and help to regulate our autonomic nervous system. So biofeedback from a clinical standpoint um, is one of the most powerful things that I utilize. And I love the field of psychophysiology for that. Um, and, and, you know, a lot of people are using it, especially in the biohacking community on more like a personal device level, which I think is awesome. I think they're really making some great devices out there. I still am a little bit wearisome about some, and this is because I come from a more clinical background. So I'm used to very accurate data measurements, but I think that there's a lot of cool things out there that are showing, uh, you know, relatively good numbers um, as far as like a, an artifact standpoint and being able to limit our artifact. Uh, but I, I, um, I love biofeedback. So uh, that's, that's one modality I use. And then I also use things like Tai Chi. So I'm trained in Tai Chi. And for anybody who doesn't know what that is, that's a defensive and offensive martial arts style that's really focused on like controlled movement, um, breath synchronicity, um, mindfulness training and mindful breathing. Uh, and it's, it's really a powerful tool and technique for increasing aerobic capacity, uh, increasing balance and control, reducing pain for those with um, osteoarthritis, rheumatoid arthritis, um, or other chronic pain conditions. So we do that as well. So a lot of the programs um, that I develop are, I mean, not a lot, all of them are really centered on introducing more complementary and integrative health modalities like the ones I mentioned. Tai Chi is something that I've always been interested in in Qigong, um, though I haven't tried it out yet. So it's kind of like on my list of. Oh, man, you uh, really should. Yeah, I think I would really like it. And it's probably something that I need to integrate into my yeah. routine um, because I'm always, you know, I'm very go, go, go a little bit more of like the masculine energy. Yeah. And so I need to. Um, more modalities that are a little more soft or a little more quiet or, um, you know, create that space in your mind for yes. increased self-awareness. I always do so much better with those, but it's hard to like, you know, make time to do that stuff. <laughs> right. No, absolutely. And a lot of people will tell me too that uh, a lot of my patients will say like, I, I never realized kind of how amped up I was until I did yoga or until mm -hmm. I did Tai Chi or until I did mindfulness meditation. And I really come back again, because my background's in applied psychophysiology. I really come back to telling them that, Hey, listen, you're in flight or flight mode, your body, your brain thought that there was some form of, of stressor in front of you, some form of something that was targeting your mind and body. And so your body and your mind were just responding to that threat by staying amped up. And for those who are in the military, that I mean, that's very common because especially if they've seen war, um, if they've been um, deployed and overseas, 
and then, and they were experienced it for so long. The problem is, is that they, uh, they're really sending or the, they're receiving the signals from the brain to say, there's a threat, there's a threat, respond, respond, respond. And it isn't until we introduce something like this that we can slow down and really help <laughs> to kind of pump the brakes, turn on the parasympathetic nervous system and, uh, and just be calm and be centered. And so I think for, you know, individuals like you, Kayla, for individuals like me, for other people who are just kind of hard charging individuals, it is practices like these that I think that are just absolutely paramount to our overall health and slowing down because we can really, uh, burn ourselves out quickly. Um, if we light the candle at both ends. Oh yeah. Yeah. I've definitely been known to do that. <laughs> and so, uh, so yeah, these, these sorts of practices are, are my largest challenge, but also just so much more impactful than any other health practices for me. Um, yes. so yeah, I totally agree. Right, I, I did want to go back to, um, what you mentioned about heart rate variability training and biofeedback. I think that this is such a powerful tool. If you're able to go and work with a clinician, um, it's really going to be something that you'll probably see profound change with. But on an individual level, you mentioned how some of the wearables are not super accurate, but I'm always a proponent of having metrics because you know what gets measured gets done and maybe that's the health scientist in me talking but yes um but you know data to action and if you don't have any data to work from then it's a it's a little more hard so even if the data is not super accurate but it's consistent because it's from one wearable one device so the device in and of itself is going to be consistent it doesn't really matter what the accuracy of the numbers are it just right. matters that the change is um, consistent. And so, or the, ch the percent changes that you see, as long as it's, if it's collected from the same device, it's still going to be accurately telling you like if you're making improvement or not. So I really love to, um, suggest anyone to wear a wearable to collect their own personal data and see changes over time. Because if you can put a metric to something, especially like heart rate variability is such a powerful metric of resilience, then you can actually measure if your resilience is increasing or decreasing. Um, so I think that, yeah, just, uh, just, Putting, doing your own little self-experimentations by having some sort of data, whether it be a wearable or even just like keeping a journal, if you can be really diligent about doing that, is going to make all the change in the world because you don't really know um, if you're making progress if you, if you can't really put any metrics to it. Yeah, I, I really love that point. I think that is great. And it's great to clarify too that um, that wearables can give you very valuable information as long as they are consistent, um, as long as there is good reliability from a consistent standpoint. Now, validity might be kind of an, a whole topic for a different discussion. And that's because oh, yeah. I come, yeah, that's because I come from a, a, a research background as well. So when I look yeah. at data metrics from a wearable, then I'm always thinking like, oh, are they, are they removing? artifact or like ectopic beats or they removing things that they should be removing and not calculating into data but it really doesn't matter because as long as we're able to quantify something and have a baseline that is reliable then we're able to take that and work with that so I think that you know from the perspective of a wearables um, I really like it um, so for instance like you know I wear an aura ring when I sleep and you know it shows HRV data it shows resting heart rate data and obviously sleep data that's what it's what it's really meant for and one of the things is 
if I hook myself up to a clinical biofeedback machine while I'm sleeping and I look at my heart rate variability throughout the night, it might look very different from a numbers perspective, a millisecond perspective uh, 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 than my aura ring. Now, again, that doesn't really matter because I'm not collecting clinical data for research. So I don't need to be as concerned with the validity of the measurements, but over time, I just want to see reliability. So there's a few machines, a few wearables for HRV especially that I've really become fond of. Um, one of them is by HeartMath. It's called the Inner Balance. You hook it up right into your phone. There's a photoplasmograph um, sensor that's hooked up onto your earlobe because we have a pretty strong pulse center in our earlobe. And it gives you heart rate variability data. So I really like that one. Another one I like is called Leaf Therapeutics, L-I-E-F Therapeutics. And it is a wearable EKG, which is amazing to have something like that. Obviously, with a wearable EKG, it's more expensive and you have to, you know, buy, buy uh, electrodes to put on your body, but it gives you such accurate data uh, when it comes to heart rate variability. And it is something, too, that if it sees your heart variability drop too low, it senses that you're stressed or something's going on, it will vibrate haptically on your body to alert you to either start some rescue breathing, box breathing, whatever kind of helps you to increase your heart rate variability and reduce your sympathetic overload. And so I absolutely love those. The only problem that I have with wearables, and this is going to get into the weird side of me, but it's okay. I mean, biohackers listen to you, so they're, they're, they'll get where I'm coming from, is that I have measured um, different EMF readings with some of these wearables, and they're not super great, um, which yeah. is why I don't recommend to wear them all the time. So a huge one, and, and this is, again, not to knock this company down. I think that this company has done some really great work, but Muse is a company that has a wearable a meditative EEG. G. And uh, that one's sitting on top of your head, uh, right about a few centimeters from your brain on your skull, and it emits an immense amount of EMF. So I'm always kind of wearisome on that end. Uh, but again, I don't want to, you know, kind of split hairs too much here, but it, EMF just typically is a, a primary concern of mine as well. So I just wanted to point that out just in case people were wondering about EMF and wearables. Oh, yeah. I'm glad you mentioned it because everyone listening is aware of, of the problem with EMFs and would definitely value that information. I didn't know that about Muse, but I actually specifically before I chose my wearable, which I use BioStrap, mm -hmm. I talked with the owner and specifically asked about EMF. And that was one of their main concerns is creating as low EMF output as possible on their wearable. So that's, that's awesome. really valuable for me. Yeah. That's really great. No, that's, that's fantastic. And you know, what I say too is, is like I, I recommended the inner balance by heart math. And so you have mm -hmm. to have that one hooked up to your phone, but even though, even though you have it hooked up to your phone and your phone has to be close to your body because it's hooked onto a cord. One of the things that I would recommend is just be smart about it. Put your plane on air, uh, airplane mode. So as they put your plane, put your phone on airplane mode. <laughs> <laughs> getting tongue tied. Uh, and then that will reduce the EMF, uh, the radio frequency EMF by yeah. a massive amount. Um, you will get a little bit of electrical EMF from the uh, photoplasmography on your ear, but it is pretty minor and you would only use it for about 10 minutes, um, 10 to mm. 15 minutes. So that's, uh, yeah. So it's, it's again, splitting hairs maybe, but it's still a concern of a, a lot of ours. So I think it's worth mentioning. Oh, absolutely. Before we wrap up our podcast, um, I'm sure you and I could talk all day about 
about all of this fascinating <laughs> work that you're into um, that I also am into. And, yes. But uh, I wanted to ask you a couple of questions that I like to ask all of my podcast guests. And the first one is, um, do you have a morning routine? And if so, what does that include? Oh, yes, I do have a morning routine. And, and I would say, I'd venture to say that it's quite extensive. So for those of uh, who don't know, I think you might've mentioned it earlier. I know I've mentioned it. So I, um, I, I am the co-host of the Ben Greenfield fitness podcast. So shameless plug there. Uh, and one of the things that uh, we talk about a lot is morning routines and Ben's is just, I mean, it's Ben Greenfield. So of course his is insane. Uh, but I would say that mine, um, it's not, not a close second, but I do a lot of things in the morning just simply because I know of the importance of, of establishing kind of a good framework for the day. So I am a early morning riser. Um, I, I kind of always have been, I would, no, not always, since graduate school. That's kind of what makes me, made me an early morning riser. Um, and I'm up typically by about 4.30 to 5 a.m. And I'm in clinic by about 6.45 to 7 a.m. So I get there pretty early. And one of the first things I do in the morning before my feet even hit the ground is I will complete an entry in what's called a five-minute journal. Have you heard of that by a chance? Yep. Uh, that's okay. a pretty popular one. So I think yeah. probably most people have heard of it. Yeah. Okay, cool. So I use, um, actually use what's called a pilot's pin. Um, so a pilot's pin has like a LED in the tip of it and it has a red cap. You can use a white cap, but in the morning I want a red LED cap or a red cap. And uh, so I'll click that button and it will light up red in my, in my kind of area so that I can see what I'm writing because my room's pitch black dark. My wife's asleep next to me. So I don't want to like wake her up if I, if I don't have to, but yeah, but in my five minute journal, I'll put down three things I'm grateful for three things I'm excited about for the day or three things that will make the day great. And then one affirmation. And I think that this is such a valuable start to my day because it gets me thinking about what truly matters in my life. What are those things that really are getting me out of the bed? And then uh, after that, I will go take a shower and I always take a shower with the lights off. And that probably won't sound too weird to many of, of your listeners, but I do have a red light in my bathroom that I'll light up, but I never turn the lights on. Um, I do have a window that looks to the outside, but again, I'm waking up at 4.30 to 5. So generally there's no sunlight out. So I'll keep a red light on and then I'll take a hot, cold contrast shower. So that's one thing that I almost always do in the morning. I never take a hot shower because it'll put me to sleep. And I like the idea of a hot, cold contrast shower in the morning. Um, then I'll go downstairs uh, with my blue blockers always on. I wear a bl um, blue blockers. I have multiple pairs uh, that were sent to me by uh, what, what I would argue is like the greatest company for blue blocking. And it's not to down any other companies. A lot of great companies out there. But I wear uh, a pair uh, from Raw Optics, R-A Optics. A guy named Matt Maruka, uh, is a, he's a youngin. He's a young guy, but he's a, he's a really cool guy who's developed some of the most technologically advanced blue blocking lenses and he also uh, has made them super stylish, which is really nice because a lot of those are pretty damn ugly. And then I will always turn the Wi-Fi router on when I go downstairs because my Wi-Fi router goes off at night and just have a remote. And, and so I'll do that. And then I'll drink like eight ounces of lemon water that's been filtered through my reverse osmosis filter. So I use an AquaTrue system, which is like my, my favorite thing that I've ever bought probably from a, from a nutritional biohacking perspective. I just love the water from there. And then I'll also drink 10 ounces of molecular hydrogen water. So I drop in um, some ultra H2 tabs um, that uh, uh, a guy named Robert Slovak created. Um, so he, he made some awesome hydrogen water tablets. 
And then after that, depending on the, on the morning and the time of year, almost always, almost certainly go outside right away and I will ground barefoot. And uh, typically most days I'll do Tai Chi. So if you're looking to kind of uh, spice up your ground, uh, your grounding in the morning or any time during the day, Tai Chi is a great way to, to kind of um, fill up a little bit of space and get the, uh, get the mind ready for the day. And then, um, and I know I'm going on, but this is kind of my morning. <laughs> and then I'll typically drink <laughs> like 10 to 20 ounces of coffee. Um, so I only drink organic Kian coffee. Again, Ben, I'm giving you all these plugs. If you're listening, it should up my paycheck. Uh, and then I'll drink that with um, about 200 milligrams of L-theanine um, to really kind of displace any of the negative jittery effects that come from the caffeine. And then, you know, depending on the morning, I almost always do a 16-9 fast. Every single day I do a 16-9. But if I'm not feeling it that day, if I need a little bit something extra, I will do like a buttered coffee, like a bulletproof coffee with uh, C8 MCTs, about one to two tablespoons of grass-fed butter. And then I'll typically add about two tablespoons of Ceylon cinnamon. Um, that'll really help to flavor the coffee, but also too helps with blood sugar regulation, which is great. And if I don't need that second of cup of coffee, so like for instance, this morning, I just wasn't feeling it. I didn't need kind of that caffeine boost. I'll drink um, a Four Sigmatic Lion's Mane Elixir. So Lion's Mane is like one of my absolute favorite uh, adaptogens and mushrooms. So I'm, I'm huge into mushroom teas. So I'll do Lion's Mane. And then uh, morning supplements are the, kind of the, like the last thing that I put in my body before I go to work. I don't take a lot of supplements. I'm just not a huge supplement guy um, for, for a couple of reasons, but uh, yeah, that's probably for another day. I'll typically drink one vial of what's called Kintone hypertonic minerals and trace elements. And then I'll do uh, a Thorn multivitamin. Uh, Thorn is just an amazing company, put out some really good stuff. And then I'll do a little bit of uh, krill oil uh, in the morning as well. And then the last thing I do before I go to work is that I will make sure that I get at least five ten, to 10 minutes of sunlight directly in the eye and on the skin. So I'll step outside. Um, I'll get that for five to 10 minutes facing directly at the sun. I don't stare directly at the sun, but about 20 degrees off from the sun. And a lot of times I'll just do that, um, you know, either if, depending on the time of year, I'll do it when I'm outside grounding and doing Tai Chi, or I'll just do it kind of separately. And then when I get to my office, uh, my office, I do, you know, when I walk into my office, honestly, every day, there's this little bit of, of me that gets a tiny bit stressed. It's like, oh goodness, I've got the day ahead of me. Like what, how many patients do I have to see? What do I have to do? And so one of the things that I will end up doing in order to ground me, in order to really help center me for the day, I'll do about 10 to 15 minutes of meditation and I always have an intranasal infrared light up my nose. So I use a V light, eight, 10 nanometer uh, intranasal light. And that really helps um, kind of prepare me for the day. And then I'm able to kind of get going with whatever is in front of me. So I know that was really long winded. That was a lot of stuff. I told you I do a lot in the morning, but that really does help me get going in the day. Oh yeah. No, I, I love your full spectrum commitment to morning routine. Uh, I do, I practice all of the same things that you mentioned. Um, though I don't always fit it in, in the morning. Sometimes it's throughout the day, but sure. I've been meaning to try, uh, Ben's Kion coffee. And so oh, I need yeah. to, I need to get on that. And then you also reminded so me, good. um, Thorne, I've been wanting to try their supplements. So I'm glad that you like them. They actually, I'm on team USA. Um, I'm a do athlete and, nice. uh, and they actually offer a discount to members of team USA. So I'm going to actually 
get some of those. So oh, you, you should. have specific recommendations on which ones, I know you said you take a multi. Um, yeah, Thorn Multivitamin Elite. And that 40% discount, that's pretty phenomenal because yeah. I, I'm not going to lie, Thorn is, there's a lot of research behind Thorn. And I think that they are the tip top vitamin and supplement company out there. And, mm. and the thing about Thorn is, is that with that and all the research backing, all of the great things that they put into their supplements causes it to be a little bit more pricey as you might um, just yeah. assume. Oh, absolutely. I'm excited to try it. Now that, uh, good. that I've heard somebody say that they've had good experience, that makes me oh, feel yeah. good about it. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So um, we talked about so many awesome different modalities that people can try and different practices and biohacks. But if you could just drill down and just choose one piece of tangible advice that you would give somebody to implement into their life right away that would make the biggest overall impact on their wellness, um, what would that be? Hmm. It's a, it's a good question. And I think that my advice, honestly, it truly does not have anything to do with biohacks. It doesn't have anything to do with nutrition and it doesn't have anything to do with fitness. And indeed, I think that it has something to do with something much greater. Honestly, my top recommendation is for people to be open-minded and to learn to live with uncertainty or as I like to say, live in the gray because it is nutritional fitness, health and wellness dogma that can really get us into trouble. And I think of this just like our political parties, we can become so extreme and combative that we end up polarizing ourselves and pitting ourselves against one another and, and we end up going nowhere. And this also means that we need to give ourselves and others a little bit of leniency. And I know we already talked about that, but I think it's worth kind of expressing again, because one of the main things um, that, that we have difficulty with is that we end up jumping to conclusions and then we try to strong arm others into believing what we believe instead of listening, you know, and I think so instead of, you know, us listening to respond to others, we really need to listen to understand because this is how we grow. And, and kind of the last, I guess, point to my one point is that we need to surround ourselves uh, with those that we love uh, and those that love us. It's my belief that we grow most in community, you know, surrounded by those who are willing to be accepting of our faults and will unconditionally and unrelentingly show us kindness, care, and compassion. That was a long-winded one point, but. <laughs> I love it. And especially that last piece that you said about community, um, it's also, you know, from a, a neuroscience standpoint, that is the aspect of, of mirror neurons. And it's so important who you surround yourself with because your own neurology will mirror what you're um, perceiving of other people around you. So I right. think that's really important too. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more. I think that that's, uh, that is something that really goes um, missed a lot of the times. And we find ourselves just either in toxic relationships or we find ourselves around people that we really just don't enjoy that much. So yeah. I was like, hey, we only have one life to live. Like really surround yourselves in those that you love and then those that love you. Totally. I think that's an awesome point to leave our listeners with. Um, <laughs> So if the listeners are interested in learning more about you or about your practice, or if they want to find your podcast or um, just connect with you, where's the best place? 
Yeah, absolutely. So a couple things. My website is www.drjwiles.com. So that's D-R-J-A-Y-W-I-L-E-S.com. I'm also on uh, the Ben Greenfield Fitness Podcast. So you can listen to that one. You can find that one in, in kind of any avenue, Stitcher and iTunes. And the last thing is kind of a, a new bit of announcement. I just released this on Instagram, I think like two days ago. I'm actually going to be coming out with my own podcast. So pay attention for that. It's going to be called Mind Hackers Radio. And so I, I think that's going to be, I have a list of individuals who are going to be interviewed for it, but really that podcast is going to center around uh, emotional, psychological, and cognitive performance and optimization and, and much, much more. Oh, that's super exciting. I will definitely be a listener of that. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on. This was fun. Yeah. Thanks so much, Kayla, for having me. Thank you so much for listening today. You are the driving force behind this podcast. So if you liked this episode, please let me know by leaving a review. And I would also love it if you could share, text, email, or even screenshot the podcast episode and share it on your social media and be sure to tag me, biocurious underscore Kayla, so that I can repost your post. This really helps me to grow the podcast and continue bringing useful, actionable health information from amazing experts from around the world straight to your ear. 